In his commentary on the book of Daniel, Ian DeGuid asks the question, don't you just hate some of those glowing family newsletters you receive every year during the holiday season? You know, the ones that run like this. It's been a great year for the lamplighters. <laughs> Greg had been hoping for a promotion, but what a surprise when the CEO came to his desk and begged him to take over the company. The whole office chipped in and gave the family a week in Paris to celebrate. Wasn't that nice? <laughs> of course, Jean has been busy as well. You probably saw that news item about how she rescued a school bus full of children from a kidnapper armed only with a plastic comb. Nice to think, too, that the poem she wrote for last year's holiday letter will be chiseled into the wall of the Library of Congress. The twins did so well at the state tap dance championship that Spielberg is crafting a movie around them. While Greg Jr.'s science fair project was the topic of much excitement in the New England Journal of Medicine. That's hyperbole if you didn't catch that. We all know the kind of letter that he's talking about, though, because we've received them. The ones that make you feel as if your life is lived from the kitty table, right? Looking in on the elaborate banquet that's set up in the next room for those people who have done something with their lives, right? We get done reading letters like those, and we want to burn them and stomp on the ashes. <laughs> the nerve of those people, we think. Why don't they just host a parade in their own honor? They're so full of themselves, we think. And that may be. That may be. But why do we feel that way? Because we're so full of ourselves, right? We're mad because we can't say such things about ourselves. I think C.S. Lewis was right when he, he said this. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next person. So this morning, we'll go to Daniel chapter 4, and we'll see King Nebuchadnezzar walking on the balcony, praising himself as he looks out over his kingdom. And when we see that, we're tempted to think, dude, that guy is a textbook narcissist. When the reality is that the human heart is such that we do the same thing with much less. There's always someone we have more than, so our pride leads us to feel good about ourselves. And there are always people that we have more than, or I'm sorry, always people that have more than us. And then our pride leads us towards self-pity. Both pride, right? Whether it's feeling good about ourselves and boasting in ourselves, or whether it's self-pity, it comes from the same root, pride. This is why we all need to heed the words of Daniel 4 this morning. It's why we can all gain from it today. Because pride exists in every human heart. We have all broken the first commandment, which is, you, ha you shall have no other gods before me. We break that commandment by making gods out of ourselves. But God says in Isaiah 48, 11, My glory I will not give to another. I will not give it to another. Therefore, in order to get to God, whether you're the most powerful man in the world, like Nebuchadnezzar, or you're the biggest nobody in the world, 
We must all come to God the same way, on our knees at the end of ourselves. This morning we, we see King Nebuchadnezzar go from pride to worship, or, or we see him go from self-worship to God-worship in our text. While he is the ruler of the most powerful kingdom in the world, Nebuchadnezzar, let's not forget that his pride grew from the same soil that ours does. Consequently, there's much we have here to be refreshed by and to learn from. So this morning, we see Nebuchadnezzar um, going from self-centered to God-centered. And there are three points that I want to bring out of this text. Number one, we see him at the pinnacle of pride. He goes from the pinnacle of pride to the valley of humiliation to the bedrock of worship. It's three things. We see him go from the pinnacle of pride to the valley of humiliation to the bedrock of worship. So turn with me, if you're not already there, to Daniel chapter 4. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I am going to read verses 28 through 37. So follow along with me as I read. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out, so I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. So we see him in our text at the pinnacle of pride first. In order to grasp the height of Nebuchadnezzar's pride, it would be beneficial for us to look back at the previous chapters in the book of Daniel. So in Daniel chapter 1, we find that Daniel, Shadrach, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are favored by Nebuchadnezzar because of their superiority above all the magicians and conjurers in the kingdom. So he already knows that there's a unique excellence about them that makes them different. In chapter 2, when no one could interpret Nebuchadnezzar's first dream, Daniel steps in 
and comes before the king and he says this, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. In response to Daniel's interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar says this, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. See, Nebuchadnezzar sees the power of God, but he refuses to humble himself before this God. How do we know that? Because as we saw last week in chapter three, he erects this 90 foot golden statue and commands all of Babylon to bow down and worship it. And as we also saw last week, Daniel's friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to worship this statue. And as a result, he throws them into the fiery furnace. But when Nebuchadnezzar sees that they're unharmed, they see the fourth member in there, right? The the one that looks like the, the son of the gods, Nebuchadnezzar says. He's in the fire with them and they are unharmed. They take the men out of the fire and there's no evidence whatsoever that they have even been close to fire. And what does he say? Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him. Then he goes on and makes a decree, right? A decree that if anyone speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, then they will be torn limb from limb, from limb and their houses will be reduced to rubbish. Upon reading this story, For the first time, we might be tempted to think that Nebuchadnezzar got the real thing, both in chapters 2 and 3, right? When I was a new believer, I was reading through the book of Daniel, and I remember getting to the end of chapter 2 and thinking to myself, that's it. Nebuchadnezzar got the real thing. He's born again. Look, obviously, he recognizes God's power. Well, then I had my quiet time the next morning and saw chapter 3. It's not true. Why would he be making this gold statue for everybody to bow down to if he was worshiping the God of heaven? And then you get to the end of chapter three and you think, surely he got the real thing. He got it this time. This time it's going to stick. But then chapter four, we see him on the balcony there on his roof. And he's engaging in this soliloquy to himself and his own greatness. Didn't get it. Still hasn't committed himself to this God, the God of Israel. See, I began to ask myself, why didn't, why wasn't it in chapters two and three that Nebuchadnezzar truly repented, truly started worshiping the God of heaven. And you see something uh, very important if you, if you look in the text, and uh, Ian DeQuid actually led me to this conclusion, that you never see Nebuchadnezzar make God his God. In that he says, um, your God, Daniel, right? your God is a God of gods, or, or blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but it's never his God. It's always their God. It's, it's unlike Ruth, right? Ruth is this pagan woman in the book of Ruth. Uh, she is going with Naomi, her mother-in-law, who's an Israelite. And, and uh, Ruth is from Moab. She's pagan. She doesn't worship the God of Israel, but she's walking with her mother-in-law back to Israel. And her mother-in-law says, no, go back to your home. Go back. I'm going back to my um, country after her husband has died and Ruth's husband has died. And and Ruth says, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. The switch of loyalties there. 
The God of Israel becomes her God, but that hasn't happened up to this point with Nebuchadnezzar. And here in chapter 4, earlier in the chapter, we see that Daniel has interpreted another dream for Nebuchadnezzar, right? A dream that prophesies the act of humbling that God is going to bring upon him if he does not recognize the power of God over the realm of mankind. Daniel urges the king to repent. He he interprets his dream and he says, repent, right? This this is going to happen. It's going to go down this way, Nebuchadnezzar. Repent and turn from this sin. Turn to the Lord. As we see in our text this morning, repentance is far from Nebuchadnezzar's mind. He's not going to heed Daniel's warning. It's been a year, if you noticed in verse 28, it's been a year since Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but Nebuchadnezzar seems as prideful as ever. God has mercifully given Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to repent, but he's not thinking about repentance. He's thinking about his own glory and majesty. Look at verse 30 with me again. It says, the king of Babylon reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? As he's on his roof there, he looks over Babylon and he claims that he himself, by the might of his power, has built this for, or built this by the power of his might as his royal residence. He's forgotten about the power of God, hasn't he? Nebuchadnezzar is Nebuchadnezzar's God. Nebuchadnezzar is Nebuchadnezzar's God, and so he's deluded himself into believing this lie that he is responsible for making Babylon what it is. He doesn't understand that everything he possesses has been given to him by God. King Nebuchadnezzar is like a man on life support who begins to boast about how well he's breathing. When in the reality of the situation is that the only reason he's breathing is because he's hooked up this machine that's sitting right next to the bed. Man possesses no power to live and rule. The only power he has to live is being channeled to him from this other source. In the same way, Nebuchadnezzar does not possess any power that he has not been given from above. We already know this, right? Because uh, we're told by the prophet Jeremiah, as we looked at uh, a few weeks ago, the prophet Jeremiah called Nebuchadnezzar, or speaking God's words to the people of Judah, we find that God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. He's a pagan king, yet Nebuchadnezzar calls him his servant, because he raised him up for the purpose of uh, bringing Israel to destruction as part of their judgment because they had broken the Mosaic law time and time and time and time again, right? And so he raised up Nebuchadnezzar to take Israel captive and bring them back to Babylon. And that's why he calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. See, Nebuchadnezzar, like everyone else, is completely dependent on this sovereign God who holds his life in the palm of his hand. And the only thing that's keeping God from squeezing is God's own good pleasure. That's humbling, isn't it? It's Nebuchadnezzar, and that's all of us. Now, no one in this room is the kingdom of one of the greatest kingdoms in the world right now. So in that sense, you're not like Nebuchadnezzar. You don't have a palace You don't have a balcony or a roof that you can walk out on and look upon the realm of your kingdom. You don't have 
a kingdom to rule over. But God has given us all a capacity of authority, hasn't he? He's all given us some kind of authority. We've got little miniature kingdoms that we rule over, don't we? Right? We're not like Nebuchadnezzar. We don't have a whole land, a whole nation, but we have little miniature kingdoms. For example, parents, God has placed you in authority over your children, right? And at times when things are going well, with the same kind of pride as Nebuchadnezzar, you may stand in your living room looking over your kingdom and thinking to yourself, we've done a really good job with these kids. They're great kids. They're respectful. They're disciplined. We're leaving behind quite a legacy. You might not word it like that, but you have thoughts like that perhaps at times. Or you may say something a bit different. When things aren't going so well, you might say, we've done such a poor job with these kids. They're nothing like so-and-so's kids, right? Uh, There's nothing we can do to get these kids to behave. I wonder what the people at church think about my kids. Think, well, that's not a prideful statement, but yes, it is. Notice all the first-person pronouns used in those statements. We don't have to be kings to forget that all things are from God. You don't have to be a king to forget that. Both of these scenarios, though they seem like polar opposites, are actually very similar. See, both have left God out of the picture to focus on self. The first set of parents gave no credit to God for the way their children were turning out. The second set of parents wanted their kids to be like the, the kids from the first couple, so they too could glory in what they had accomplished in parenting. What's your little kingdom? Maybe it's, maybe it's not kingdom of your little family, but what is your miniature kingdom, the sphere wherein you have authority and control? It may not involve your family. It may involve people at work, or it may not involve people at all, right? It, it could be that your kingdom is just your kingdom, population one, you, Right? So that you have freedom and power to make your decisions yourself, right? Decisions about time and money and eating and sleeping and entertainment. This too is from God. This too is from God. It should be yielded up to Him for His service, His glory. We want so badly to be in charge of our own lives and for many of us to be in charge of other people's lives and take credit for all the good that comes as a result of it. But seeing things through God's eyes is much like um, the perspective that my wife and I had uh, with our oldest child. It was probably about two years ago. And uh, Peter was in the back seat, the, the back seat of the van. And he's strapped into his car seat and we're rolling down the road. And we hear him talking back there. What, what's, what's he saying? And we've got to listen closely. And he's saying, no, 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 you stop that. And Carrie turned around. She looked back there. Sure enough, kid's got an action figure. He's giving a spank into the action figure. And we thought, what's going on? And we listened a little bit longer, and we kind of were chuckling to ourselves. And so it's this, I mean, it was hilarious to us because you've got a probably three-year-old kid at the time. He's in the car that we put him in, in the seat, and we buckled him up in this car seat. He didn't get himself in the car seat, and he can't buckle himself out, Right? And we're going to a, designate, a designated point, a, a place that he did not decide we're taking him to this place, right? We're driving the car. He's just riding in the car. We're deciding where to go. And yet 
what, is, what happens? He's got this idea that he's in charge. He's got authority, right? It's a delusion, right? It's, it's kind of like the way God must look upon us and our little miniature kingdoms that we've got for ourselves, right? We think we've got this charge. We've got this control. We've got sovereignty in this sphere, but we're deluded. So, are we going to see things God's way? It's from Him to be used for His service, for His glory. Are we going to keep up the illusion? Church, control and authority belongs to God alone. It's foolish to think otherwise. You don't even need kids or necessarily authority to be guilty of pride. You may simply have a talent or an ability, right? That you don't use for the Lord. You don't see it as from God to be used for God. And so you use it for self, right? We talked about this a little bit last week. You know? it's, it's something that could be so small. You know, it could be something that you're really, really good at. And people, lots of people recognize you for it. Or you can take glory and use some ability or some talent that's really small and insignificant. And you can take pride from that. You know, I, I think I've told you before that I, I have taken pride in being a good speller. How lame is that? Okay? I spell well. And so I like it when people come and ask me, Hey, Brent, uh, how do you spell this word? I'm like, actually, uh, there's only one T. So. Or there's a, the P is silent. You know, so, you know, we can take little things like this. And what is it for you, you know? It could be something so tiny and you get glory from it. You use it for yourself and you think, yeah, that's right. You came to me. You came to me for that. So we forget. We don't have to be a king to forget. It's not ours. It's his. He has given it. He can take it away just like he's going to do with Nebuchadnezzar. What else can be gleaned from Nebuchadnezzar's statement here? Not only does he see Babylon as being built from his power, but he sees that he has done it for his own majesty, his own glory. Right? Nebuchadnezzar has made it known that he enjoys self-sufficiency instead of God-sufficiency, and now he is enjoying self-exaltation instead of God-exaltation. He's deluded himself into thinking that he is the one who's glorious, that he is the one who is majestic. But Psalm 86, 8 through 10 says this, listen. There's no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. The only one who is glorious, majestic, is God. The only one. Nebuchadnezzar, he's living a lie, and we live a lie if we believe for a second that we are the ones who are glorious. We need to hear Isaiah chapter 40. It says, It is God who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers to him who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes judges of the earth meaningless. 
If anyone under the sun could be labeled glorious, it was Nebuchadnezzar, right? But Isaiah's text makes it clear that God can reduce him to nothing, and he does reduce him to nothing. If Nebuchadnezzar can be reduced to nothing, what makes us think we can do anything to exalt ourselves? Our glory is like this. Think about it. Even though any glory or position or status you may have has been given to you from God, it's not yours, it's, it's, it's God's really. Think of your glory in this way. It's kind of like your glory is the stars when the sun rises in the morning. Whenever the sun gets to noonday, do you see any stars anywhere? <laughs> you see any stars? I, I tried looking. You see the sun. The sun lights up the sky. The glory, the, the brilliance, the illumination of the sun is right before you. What about those stars you saw the night before when you looked up into the sky and they were so beautiful? The sun has completely overcome them and its brightness much like us compared to God's glory. So we see him at the pinnacle of pride, but he goes to the valley of humiliation as well. Look with me at verses 31 through 33. Again, with the, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar to Judas declared, Sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. While the words are still in his mouth, he's sitting there giving praise to himself. And God says, no more. No more. This is what's going to happen to you by my decree. So he becomes insane and he's taken from his throne driven away from mankind. And something that I, I just, this is kind of a side note, but apparently in the past, there have been people that have tried to psychoanalyze Nebuchadnezzar, like try to label what's actually going on with him, what's, what's wrong in his mind, right? Uh, like label him with some diagnosis. This is God's judgment. We're not told the details. He, he becomes insane. He becomes like an animal for seven years. Don't try to diagnose him or psychoanalyze him. This is God's judgment on him. Okay, because he would not give glory to God and recognize his authority over the realm of mankind. The 18th century commentator Matthew Henry says this, Nebuchadnezzar would be more than a man, and therefore God justly makes him less than a man and puts him upon a level with the beasts. As awful as this circumstance may sound, it's nothing short of sweet grace. Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar in seven years his reasons restored and his eyes are turned to heaven it's sweet grace especially when you think about another ruler to whom this did not happen turn with me to Acts 12 
Acts 12, 21 through 23. This is King Herod. Verse 21, on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them, the people. The people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and died. There's no looking up to heaven for Herod. Herod was struck down, killed immediately because he did not give glory to God. If Nebuchadnezzar has to become like an animal for seven years so that his soul would not spend eternity in hell, but instead praise the God of heaven, my goodness, will he not praise the Lord for those seven years? Nebuchadnezzar's humbling shows the strength and the tenacity of God's kindness. God's being kind to Nebuchadnezzar here. Do you see that? God's not afraid to do what hurts so that Nebuchadnezzar can experience the bliss of salvation. Instead of simply giving Nebuchadnezzar over to his pride, God stripped him of everything. Everything that made him proud so that he would humbly recognize that God is the ruler over mankind. Now, as we've already seen, Nebuchadnezzar had a number of opportunities to give the honor to God, but he instead continued to praise himself. And we, we see that any kind of praise he gave to God was only circumstantial. It didn't stick, right? It didn't flow from a heart of true faith. But God was patient with him. In a human sense, God did not give up on Nebuchadnezzar. And now God, in this instance, is powerfully showing that he will have his glory. And in his kindness, he will save Nebuchadnezzar in order to get it. He'll save him through the suffering. We see that God is mighty to save here, church. Don't we? He's mighty to save, just as he is with each of us who follow Jesus Christ. Because here's the reality. He said, well, I didn't... I have to become like an animal for seven years in order to come to God, in order to come to God through Christ. That's true. But you had to come to the same place that Nebuchadnezzar has come to the end of himself. To the end of himself. Coming to the end of ourselves is painful. In order for a beautiful life to spring up from our souls, we had to die first. We had to die to ourselves to become alive in Christ. Although it was painful, would we really have it any other way? Yes. We have to realize that we have no worth in and of ourselves, no esteem in and of ourselves, that it's only God who has the glory. And that hurts because he has to break us down in order to build us back up in Christ through faith. But would we... Would we have it any other way? As we stand on this side of conversion, would we have it any other way? Because we've seen the glory. We've experienced the joy, right? We, we know what it's like. We, we know all the, the, the blessings and benefits of salvation. So praise God for smashing self in us.
It hurts. But let's say your physician has run some tests on you recently, and he discovers that you're dying. And in response to the news, he gives you two options. Option number one is that you can be given medication to numb your body so you can die comfortably. Option number two is that you can have a heart transplant. There will be much pain involved with option number two, along with a long and rigorous recovery. Which would you choose? You choose option number two. Option number two is the only way you live. In the same way, the only way we live spiritually is to have our spiritual hearts replaced. So let's thank our kind God who was in no way afraid to bring us through much pain knowing that it would bring eternal life to us. Praise God for smashing our self so we throw ourselves in the cross of Christ. Let's, let this be a reminder to us, church, that no one can swagger into the throne room of God. No one can. As if he were impressed with us, as if he were our starstruck fan, neither can we walk into his throne room trying to hold on to the smallest speck of dignity. We cannot even come to him upright. We must crawl to him because we are unworthy sinners and he is a holy and righteous God beyond comparison. But the glory is that we can still come, right? That Jesus made a way. Jesus said, Matthew 18, 3 and 4. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Doorways of this church and so many other churches are wide open. The, The church doors are wide open. Whoever wants to come, come. Hear the gospel. Hear the preaching of God's word. We want you to come. We want you to hear the doorways to heaven are smaller, skinnier, right? To get through them, you have to be the size of a child, spiritually speaking. Depending, like a child depends, right? A helpless child depending. We have to depend on Christ that way, like a child. And a child is needy, seizes need, depends on those who can give them what they need. Right? So we depend on the one who can give us what we need. Salvation. And Christ is the one who can give it. So we depend on him as children. We must become like a child to get to God. And that is exactly why God thrust Nebuchadnezzar into the wilderness, stripping him of all his sanity, power, and self-worth. Pride keeps us from God. Pride keeps us from God. It keeps unbelievers from God. Yes, they must come to the end of themselves and for the first time embrace Jesus Christ as Savior. They must die to themselves and and they must trust Christ alone. But church, as believers, we have to remember this. We must continue to die to self daily. We must worship God and deny self-worship daily. Right? Didn't Christ say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. See, Christians 
Though sin is no longer our master, it still calls out to us to return. It calls out to us to, to return to the shackles. And we go back time and time again. We go back. Many times we look a lot like Nebuchadnezzar when we go back. In our pride, we run back to the bondage of self-esteem and self-glory. Right? We, we're trying, we're, we're, we're striving after getting self-glory, self-esteem from other people, right? From meeting certain standards. And some days we think we get that self-esteem when things are going well. And other days, we don't. But we're working for it regardless. On this day, Nebuchadnezzar, as he's walking on the roof, he has a lot of self-esteem. But back in chapter 3, in the midst of his hissy fits, because you know, the three friends wouldn't bow down before him, he wasn't feeling that self-esteem so much. How do we get to a place, church, where we are not enslaved by the prideful tendency to compare ourselves to other people, making them the standard for our living, or living up to our own standards in order to experience the fleeting pleasure of self-esteem? How do we get to that place when we start comparing ourselves to the standards that we've made for ourselves or, or the standards of other people? That's bondage, isn't it? I mean, that, that's, that will shackle you up to the wall. There's no spiritual freedom there. If you trust in Christ to save you, then here's what you need to remember. Romans 4, 5. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Hear that. If you are in Christ, if you trust it in Christ, then your faith in Jesus Christ is credited to you as righteousness because Jesus imputes his righteousness to us. God now sees us through Jesus' perfection, right? His perfect life is counted to you legally as if you lived his life because he was treated as if he lived your sinful, rebellious life. The great exchange, right? Makes all the difference in the world when we're talking about denying ourselves daily. I mean, free from the bondage of self-esteem. Let me read you a long quote. It's, it's great, though. It's long but wonderful. I want you to listen closely. It's, it comes from this little booklet by Tim Keller called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Freedom of self-forgetfulness is wonderful, and I think this will be very instructive for us today. Listen closely. Boosting our self-esteem by living up to our own standards or someone else's standards sounds like a great solution. But it does not deliver. It cannot deliver. I cannot live up to my parents' standards, and that makes me feel terrible. I cannot live up to your standards, and that makes me feel terrible. I cannot live up to society's standards, and that makes me feel terrible. I cannot live up to other society's standards. That makes me feel terrible. Perhaps the solution, then, is to set my own standards. But I cannot keep them either, and it makes me feel terrible unless I set incredibly low standards. Are the low standards a solution? Not at all. That makes me feel terrible because I realize I'm the type of person who has low standards. Trying to boost our self-esteem by trying to live up to our own standards or someone else's is a trap. It's not an answer. Don't you want to be the kind of person who, when you see 
Who, who when they see themselves in a mirror or reflected in a shop window, does not admire what they see, but does not cringe either? Wouldn't you like to be the type of person who, in their imaginary life, does not sit around fantasizing about hitting self-esteem home runs, daydreaming about successes that give them the edge over other people? Or perhaps you tend to beat yourself up and to be tormented by regrets. Wouldn't you like to be free of them? What are we looking for? What we are looking for is an ultimate verdict that we are important and valuable. We look for that ultimate verdict every day in all the situations and people around us. And that means that every single day we are on trial. Every day we put ourselves back in the courtroom. In the courtroom, you have the prosecution and the defense. And everything we do is providing evidence for the prosecution or evidence for the defense. Some days we feel we are winning the trial, and other days we feel we are losing it. Here's the important part. Listen. Do you realize that it is only in the gospel of Jesus Christ that you get the verdict before the performance? The atheists might say that they get their self-image from being a good person. They are a good person, and they hope they, they eventually will get a verdict that confirms that they are a good person. For them, performance leads to the verdict. For the Buddhist, too, performance leads to the verdict. If you're a Muslim, performance leads to the verdict. All this means that every day you are in the courtroom. Every day you're on trial. That's the problem. In Christianity, the verdict leads to performance. In Christianity, the moment we believe, God imputes Christ's perfect performance to us as if it were our own and adopts us into his family. Do you see what he's saying? This is, this is so helpful. What he's saying is that you don't have to keep putting yourself back into the courtroom on trial to see if you're valuable or important, right? Okay, we're not valuable or important in and of ourselves, okay? But Christ went into the courtroom for us. And he was on trial for us, right? And he died for us. So his righteousness is imputed or credited to us. Therefore, the one, the only one whose opinion matters, God's, sees us through Christ's righteousness. So you don't have to, you have to strive day in and day out, out trying this case, right? Trying to pro provide evidence that you are important or you are valuable. God made you valuable when he united you with Christ through faith. Isn't that wonderful? That's so freeing. I mean, the things that we do so often so that we can get self-worth or self-esteem when God made us his children. We are valuable to him because of what he did through Christ. And we can rest. We don't have to keep going back in the courtroom. That's how we can preach to ourselves day in and day out so that we deny ourselves. We run from self-worship to God-worship daily. I hope that is encouraging to you today. In order for God to receive worship from Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar could no longer worship himself. Which brings us to our final stop on Nebuchadnezzar's journey, the bedrock of worship. The bedrock of worship. Turn to the text with me, if you will. Verses 34 and 35. 
of this, the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures for, from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar had to journey from the pinnacle of pride to the valley valley of humiliation and now standing on the bedrock of worship. See, because of God's intervention, Nebuchadnezzar has done a 180. His statement on the roof of his palace was all about his power, all about his majesty, but now all he can do is talk about the power and majesty of the Most High and his control over the realm of mankind. I believe this is Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. I believe we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Because we see evidence of his repentance. Before we didn't see evidence of his repentance. Now I think we do. Not only is he ascribing glory and honor to God, but he sees the true state of all mankind. Right? All the inhabitants are counted as nothing. All the inhabitants of earth. And then he says, God is able to humble those who walk in pride. Who is he describing? He's describing himself. Nebuchadnezzar is describing himself here. He is one of those inhabitants. He is the, hum, uh, the, prou- the proud person who has been humbled by God. Nebuchadnezzar is no longer deluded by his pride. He understands that God rules over all, including him and his kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar understands that God is God and he is not. Isn't that So simple, but one of those phrases we have to understand and repeat to ourselves daily. So simple. I'm not God. God's God, right? God is God and I am not. Such a simple phrase, but every day we put ourselves back on the throne of our lives. Every day. That's why by God's grace, we need to rip ourselves off that throne and allow God to sit in the place that he alone is worthy to sit in. See, the world is shouting to us and to Nebuchadnezzar, step down from the bedrock of worship. Crawl back through the valley of humiliation and scale the mountain of the pinnacle of pride. Even many evangelical churches preach that God loves everybody the same. I understand there's a sense in which God does love everybody because he made everybody and his image is stamped on us all. But we have to remember that God cannot, he cannot love with a special Christ love unless Christ dies in the place of those people and they trust in him. Right? Because that would mean God was loving wickedness if he, he loved us all the same. He can love us those, those who have come to him by his grace through Christ, he can love us because Christ took our place. He loves us as he loves Christ. Because he is loving, but he is also just, right? God can only love because of Jesus and what he did. And the only way anyone can begin their life with Christ is to come to the end of themselves. Now, as we've discovered in the book of Daniel, the book is about God, 
right? So often we, we capitalize on the characters of Daniel, um, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we kind of turn these stories into morality tales. And certainly there is an aspect in which we need to look at Daniel and, and the three friends and say, yes, I want, I want to follow their example as they follow Christ. But at the same time, we need to come above that and realize it's all about God. This is about his supreme authority over the universe. He, it's about the God who raises up kings and brings them to nothing so that they can fulfill his purposes for him. He's orchestrating all these events. It doesn't matter how big the kingdom is. It doesn't matter how small the detail is. He's working. Yes, he, he brought Israel to Babylon for their discipline, and now he's, he's saying, yes, Nebuchadnezzar, I raised you up, but I can bring you down. And he does. But we also see that Daniel is about God's mercy. He's having mercy on this pagan God. I mean, for him to say the things that he said atop that roof, you think, man, he, he should have gotten what Herod got. But God has mercy. Strikes him down to bring him back up and cast his eyes upon heaven for salvation. God is the God who's mighty to save, and he saves us from self. And you know what? For believers this morning, not only has he saved you from self and that you're, you no longer are enslaved to your selfish sin, but daily you have what you need in the gospel to dethrone yourself and replace God back on that throne. Daily you have what you need to deny self, to worship God instead of worship self because of what he's done in the gospel. Because Jesus went in the courtroom, because Jesus took our place, because God judges us based on his righteousness and not our own. Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us now to remember these things. We cannot keep these things in our hearts and minds. There's so many distractions that will bombard us as soon as we walk out the door. God, please keep these things close. May we express them to other people, talk about them so that they become entrenched in our minds and hearts, and may they overflow in obedience because... Lord, not only have we heard them, but we have received them. May you accomplish worship through us for yourself. And may we begin to see that everything in our lives is from you, so it should be returned to you. And Father, may we praise you for bringing us to the end of ourselves to make us your children. And may we rely upon the gospel to deny self daily for you. I pray in Jesus' name.